0: Uh, welcome back to the Mary with Kim Munson where we dissect issues of right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Thrilled to have in studio with me is my guest, Mary Dude, Dr. Thomas Cranwitter, my partner on Vino and Veritas Wine and Truth. a study of the Federalist Papers. I am loving it.
1: I am too. You know, I found out a long time ago that um, I have absolutely no skills at all. I can't do anything. The only thing I've ever been good at in my life is being a student. I was a great student and I loved it. And then I I learned, quickly learned that, you know, life is expensive. You got to pay bills and things. (laughs) You can't just be a student your whole life. And then I realized that the next best thing to being a student is to teach. When you teach something, you you actually learn it far Mm -hmm. better than Mm -hmm. when you're studying it as a student. So uh, throughout my career, I pick books and ideas and topics that I'm interested in and I teach it to others really is kind of a self-interested thing because I want to understand it better myself. Mm
0: -hmm. So you are, are you a former college
1: professor? I'm a former college professor. Most of, I'm a, I am an academic turned businessman. So see, that's so unique. (laughs) I spent most of my career so far uh, in the academic world. I have a PhD in political science. I taught at Claremont McKenna College in California, uh, Hillsdale College in Michigan. I helped design their constitution course, uh, which many people have taken mm-hmm. online now. Uh, I taught at George Mason University, several other places. And then, you know, I've been preaching uh, entrepreneurship, the, 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 the active creation of wealth. By promoting students, encouraging them to go out in the world and do something that other people value, (laughs) produce something, deliver some service, get off your rear ends, right? And do something productive that other people want and appreciate. That's how you create value. And I decided to take that advice for myself and stepped out into the world of entrepreneurship and. Started my own business, uh, raised some capital, and uh, uh, w- w- things are just growing, and and it's wonderful at Speakeasy Ideas. Anybody who wants to learn more can stop by our website, speakeasyideas.com. And this whole this this program that we've created together, uh, Vino and Veritas, this came about when in, in business conversations mm-hmm. between you and Speakeasy Ideas. And we thought, what if we put on a, a program, a club, let's start a club where people will buy a, a, a modestly priced you know, membership and we'll get together once a month and we're going to laugh. We're going to make new friends. We're going to drink, you know, great wine at, at, at starting at Jen Hewlin's uh, Water's Edge Winery. And we're going to work our way through the Federalist Papers over the course of a year. And it's amazing how this, number one, attracted so much attention. We, we sold out within, I don't remember, two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Year-long memberships people bought. And uh, uh, demand was so big that not long after that, we launched a second chapter of Vino and Veritas down at Castle Rock uh, at our, with our friends at Colorado Cork and Keg. Mm-hmm. And we are about to launch a third chapter up in Fort Collins. This is going to begin... June twenty fifth, I mm-hmm. believe. I think so. And uh, it's going to be at Ginger and Baker, which is just a, a a fantastic venue for this thing. And there again, we have we've almost sold out memberships for that program. And we haven't even started yet. It's a, the appetite for learning is just wonderful. And and by the way, if people, if you're up in Fort Collins, listening folks, uh, stop by our website, speakeasyideas.com. You'll see a little tab says take me to, have it take you to Vino and Veritas. You'll see a button there for Fort Collins. All the information is there as well as uh, you can, you can uh, buy a membership right there online.
0: Yeah. And speaking of that, we do have a couple of memberships available uh, It and uh, gins, Centennial, uh, because I think there's some people that have moved up to Fort Collins. And then we still have a few for uh, Castle Rock as Castle well. Castle Rock, that's right. And so and so they can go to Speakeasy Ideas, or you can go to my website as as well, mm-hmm. at, at americhicks.com. But let's, uh, the Federalist Papers. I mean, first of all, did regular people, were they really able to understand this back they, they then? They
1: were. In fact, one of my favorite exercises with college students is to assign a few Federalist Papers and not talk about them much before. Send the students away, and then they come back, right, for the next class. (laughs) And they're complaining, (laughs) right, this is so hard to read, it's so difficult. And then I remind them these were newspaper articles. These were not published in academic journals. They were not for scholarly experts, right, or academics. These were newspaper articles and ordinary people, we reading them, talking about them. Uh, when it came time for the ratification debates in all the states, people were referring to the mm-hmm. Federalist Papers as well as the, the uh, many opponents of the Constitution were writing collectively as anti-Federalists. Yeah, or, ordinary people understood these things. It, it, it sort of shows <clears throat> the, the worldliness that Americans had back then mm-hmm. uh, as well as an understanding of history. Right. The, the Federalist Papers could make references to um, ancient Greek cities, mm-hmm. to prominent Ro- ancient Roman statesmen and Americans in 1787. They actually understood what those references meant.
0: <clears throat> when you see like uh, Jesse Waters or this man on the street with, you know, like a <laughs> man on the beach or whatever it is, That's
1: depressing stuff. It's yeah.
0: very, very depressing. And um, I would highly recommend one other other thing is that. You know, we are into all this technology, and, and I love books. I mean, I have a lot of books. But I would highly recommend that everyone make sure that they have a book, you know, an, an actual copy of a dictionary. In fact, I think uh, an antique Dictionary might be a good idea, but as I'm reading the Federalist Papers, yeah. I have to have my dictionary right here as well because of many of the words that they use. But let's circle this back around. In, in fact, let, let me add
1: something to that point. Um, in many in many instances, a modern dictionary will be somewhat misleading. For example, uh, the term the terms leader and leadership. If you look those up in a dictionary today, what you will find. The definition of leader and leadership is something very desirable, something very good. And, in fact, we have right academic programs. You can go get a Ph.D. in leadership studies. We send businesses, send their corporate management off to leadership mm-hmm. training. In the Federalist Papers, every single time that word is used, it's used in a derogatory way. It's used as a term of warning. Uh, the Federalist Papers is warning the American people against demagoguery And visionary leaders who will Mm -hmm. lead the people astray. Leaders are people who flatter. They'll bribe. Mm -hmm. They'll promise things that are impossible to deliver. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the Federalist Papers is to say to the American people, don't buy that. You don't want leaders, truly free people. You lead your own life. You don't want leaders. You want some constitutional servants, public servants, who are going to exercise the few powers that we've delegated to them in the Constitution. Free people don't want leaders. And, and so that's just an example of how our language has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you don't recognize those differences, you might come away with a, you know, a very different kind of re- interpretation from reading the Federalist Papers.
0: Well, and to that point, Tom, how, how language has changed. I have been in conversations over the years. I remember my kids would come home from school and they would be, talk about something that they're – they were learning, and I'm kind of like, that's not quite right. And that's probably what began with me, this whole journey uh, to get to this point of a fierce protector of the American idea.
1: Yeah, it took you clear into your 30s to start, you know, focusing on politics, right?
0: Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't give you the years here because then people are going gotcha. to start <laughs> But one of the things was... And you could start to see this, this victim mentality. I remember this whole thing, bullying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kids, you know, say mean things. I mean, I can tell you what, eighth grade was one of the toughest years of my life. Eighth grade girls, man, they can be so mean. Um,
1: I think, and I think they still are. <laughs> I think they still are.
0: But actually, when I was in politics, I saw both men and women acting like eighth grade girls.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but but our, our kids, they need to learn resiliency. But it seemed to me to start to be some, kind, some victimhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, first of all, we need to have good manners. Mm-hmm. We don't, and if you have good manners, you don't bully other people, Right nor nor
1: do you, you don't bully nor do you beg nor do you beg right you you, you right you, you you don't go push other people around and you also don't assume that their property is yours you don't assume that you're entitled to anything and that's sort of the 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 transformation of american culture and and i would argue that goes back at least at least to the 1930s and and the whole the whole the whole New Deal way of looking at the world. The New Deal was the sort of the mm-hmm. program name for Franklin uh, Roosevelt's four administrations, and his New Deal uh, said, "Look, <clears throat> it's not enough to be for us to be protected by law in our natural freedom, right? My, my freedom to speak, my freedom to keep what I produce. That's not enough." He said, "Americans also have." They're entitled to, he used that phrase, they're entitled to things like a house and um, a job and a vacation and health care. This started in the 1930s. Sounds like AOC. Yeah, (laughs) not much has really changed. And in fact, I would argue we're still in the New Deal today. And what that did is that that sparked this idea that has spread like wildfire in the United States that we are entitled to things that we didn't earn. And if I don't have a house, if I don't have health insurance, then by golly, you have an obligation to pay for my stuff, to provide those things for me. And 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 people who assume that they're entitled to other people's property cannot act with a sense of decorum, cannot act with a sense of of, of etiquette, right? You, they can't treat other people decently because they're demanding their stuff. Right, right. <laughs> you, you, you can't steal from someone and treat them decently at the same time. And, and yet that's, that's sort of where we are today. We have, we have millions of Americans who think that other people's property belongs to them and that they can just take it as long as they have a majority of, of voters voting with them, that they can just take it. And people who are stealing from others don't tend to be very nice. And, and that goes both ways. The thief usually doesn't treat the, the the victim, you know, the person they're stealing from very well. And the person who's being ripped off tends not to be real polite. in the, About that. Uh, about yeah. that, right? They, they get angry. And in a way, that's our politics today. Oh, we have to go to break. This is going by way too
0: fast. But I want to, I still want to talk about civility. But what you've just mentioned there is, I think there's become in government creative stealing, so let's go to break. When we come back, we'll, we'll get through both of those. And maybe we'll even talk about the Federalist Papers. <laughs> so this is Kim Munson with ta- Dr. Thomas Kranewitter. Stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. In studio with me, guest Ameridu, Dr. Thomas Cranowitter, uh, my partner in Vino and Veritas, and uh, the study of the Federalist Papers, Wine and Truth. I have thrown so many things out here, and we have like about 13 minutes, maybe <laughs> max, to, to talk about all this. First of all, civility. Uh, the founders didn't always agree clearly, clearly, but um, they, I mean, how did they
1: handle it? <laughs> well, they handled it in a num- number of ways. Um, they tended to uh, m- make serious disagreements public. So they, they, essays and pamphlets were wildly popular. At that time, I remember this is a world before the internet, before TV, before radio. Um, uh, newspapers and pamphlets and essays were a way of disagreeing with each other, with arguing. I mean, it's what the Federalist Papers was. Even before Hamilton launched this project of the Federalist Papers, critics of the proposed Constitution in 1787 were writing essays and public and pamphlets and circulating them widely, and Hamilton thought. We got to respond to that, right? We 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 need to answer these these charges. It's how the Federalist papers came to be. Now, in in other cases, I mean, um, there was a sense of of honor. There was a kind of honor code back then. It's it's hard to describe today because it seems so far fetched. Yet it was very real. If a person's honor was questioned, if you were if you were if you had a reputation as being dis honorable uh, you probably had very few friends nobody was going to do business with you you couldn't be trusted and that was connected to this notion of dueling which is which is one of the ways that they actually handled their disagreements. Among the most famous which involves the the mastermind of the Federalist papers Alexander Hamilton. this is how he died and he did a tremendous thing during the election of 1800. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, ends up winning. It's a squeaker. We don't have time to go into that story of how that unfolded. But his running mate was Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr, Decided when there was a tie in the Electoral College, he decided to use that as an opportunity to try to become president himself rather than Jefferson, who was on mm-hmm. the, the head of the ticket. This is before the 12th Amendment, when the, the person who got the second number of votes would become vice president. And Burr said, well, heck with that. I can just be president. And this is when Hamilton kicks into action. He, he, he uh, went and talked to his friends in Congress. Hamilton at that point was not in any office, but he was widely known, influential. And he told his friends in Congress, he said, look, I disagree with Thomas Jefferson on, on virtually everything. I think he's confused. I think he's wrong. I think he's bad. But he's honest. He he, he makes arguments that he believes in. He said the Aaron Burr is the slimiest, most deceitful, corrupt, crony person in the in the country. He cannot become president. And in fact, Burr does not. And Burr despises Hamilton for that and challenges him to a duel. So... Hamilton's in a pinch. He's been challenged to a duel. If he just declines and doesn't show up, that means he's not honorable. He's not defended his honor. So Hamilton shows up on the field. Uh the, the 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 duel was with pistols. And you know, they marched apart whatever it was, 10 15 paces. Hamilton drew his gun first and then pointed it in the air and fired. And the message he was sending was I'm not scared to come out here And Mm -hmm. confront a duel. I'm also not a murderer. I'm not going to shoot you, Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr responded by pointing his gun right at Hamilton's chest and blew a hole through it. And so we 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 lost one of the great, not only one of the great constitutional minds. We lost one of the greatest anti-slavery advocates in, in early American history. Alexander Hamilton, this just tremendous, you know, genius of a mind. Even when even when you disagree with Hamilton, you learn something by disagreeing mm-hmm. with, with Hamilton. Right? He was he was that kind of, of human being. And so the sad truth is that's that's how they handled their disagreements sometime. Mm
0: -hmm. We're going to run out of time here, Tom Cranawitter. So we're going to have to do this again (laughs) soon. But just tell a a little bit more about Alexander Hamilton Um, growing up. I mean, he he, I mean, tough life, right?
1: Really tough life. Uh, There's a there's a there's a musical about Mm -hmm. him came out a few years ago, and it's been wildly popular. I think it's traveling around. Um, I've not seen the, the musical, but I understand why it was created. The, the guy who, who created the musical, he read Ron Chernow's uh, masterful biography of Hamilton, simply titled Hamilton. And I would recommend to all your listeners, uh, if they're going to read one book in the coming year, pick up a copy of Ron Chernow's book, Hamilton. It is it is absolutely fantastic and a among the many things you learn in there is the miserable story of of Hamilton's youth. I mean, this guy really does come from nothing. Ne- not only did he not know his father, uh, his mother didn't know who his father was, and, and there were constant disputes about who who his actual father was. She she was known as the as the community. I, I don't know what word we can use on radio mm-hmm. here, but. but mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the favorite women of women of many men. And, uh, and he lost his mother when he was eight or nine years old. She contracted this terrible disease, which he did too. And she dies this, this terrible death right in front of him. Uh, he's an orphan. He goes from orphanage to orphanage. Hamilton is a guy who, who grows up with nothing. And this is in a tiny little Island, um, in, in the Caribbean and a, a huge hurricane comes through and wipes out the Island. And a series of poems starts to show up in the local newspaper describing the destruction, describing the heart-wrenching angst and anger and depression that everyone's feeling. And they were anonymous. And everyone's saying, "Who, who, who's writing these incredible poems? They're, they're capturing what we're feeling. It was a 17-year-old Alexander Hamilton. And the people in the community said, wow, this, this, this kid's unusual. This kid has talent. He needs to be in school. And they voluntarily pooled together some money and bought a ticket to send him to New York to go to college. And that's how Alexander Hamilton gets to the United States. Okay, there's,
0: it's great that the, I have not seen the musical either. But this story, first of all, how did he learn to read and write then as a young, as a young boy?
1: He's, he's something of a prodigy in that sense. Uh, he worked for a spot of time at a newspaper so he so the editor was showing him right, mm-hmm. how to read how to edit, uh, but he was just he's one of these rare human beings who could simply watch things and absorb it and pick it up, and to a very large extent, he taught himself how to read and write and
0: to that point today, we have so many different government programs and so many different nonprofit programs which uh, and we're just going to touch on this but that um, they, people come forward and say, we need to help the fill in the blank. homeless is a big one right now, right, and on this uh, initiative three hundred that was on the Denver ballot just recently about you know you could camp anywhere, uh, had uh, some uh, some of the people in from the Denver Metro Realtors Association, and they said that in Denver that we spend uh, between eighteen and nineteen thousand dollars per homeless person, that's just Denver, uh, the city of Denver. Then there's all kinds of different uh, nonprofits that are involved in that. And instead of helping people, you know, if you decide that you want to, if government gets into it, you're going to get more of it if you're going to subsidize it. And so we're having more and more homeless. But it's all the people that are living off of that. These people that are are, uh, in these programs, these nonprofits, these uh, administrators, these bureaucrats, They're making six-figure salaries plus pensions, and uh, so they don't really want to alleviate the
1: problem. Well, Kim, the the bureaucrats need to live too. Come on, they (laughs) they need a nice style of living. But look, culturally, we're 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 in this place today where um, many American, many ordinary Americans listening right now to this program, they think that we have to actively do things um, for other people for them to live a nice life, including our own kids, right? We, uh, Everyone, many parents run around wringing their hands over what, what preschools their kids going to get into, what kindergarten, right? All these things because uh, what training camps for sports are their kids going to, it all has to be the best. And yet when you look in American history, two of the greatest minds... And I'm not saying these people are perfect. I'm just saying they were tremendous minds and talented people. Alexander Hamilton and Abraham Lincoln both grow up with nothing. They don't have expensive tutors. They don't. They're not going to expensive private you know training camps. They they they, 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 they grow up with nothing. And one of them writes, writes the Federal's papers. The other one writes the Gettysburg Address. I tell you, and that's, and you know what,
0: we're out of time, but that's where this whole Vino and Veritas came from, was you were here, we're talking about the Gettysburg Address, and what you said, you said people ask you, how long did it take Lincoln to write the Gettysburg Address? His whole life. And when you said a lifetime, it absolutely took my breath away. And so when we look, you know, at at young people, you have to take great hope when you look at Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers and, and Abraham Lincoln Dr. Tom Cranawitter, it's gone too fast. There's so many other things okay. I'd like to talk with you about. But uh, we're, uh, we'll, we'll be back tomorrow morning. But today, James Madison, uh, Regard, and he's one of the, the writers of the Federalist Papers. He was John Jay and Alexander Hamilton said, our Constitution represents the work of the finger of Almighty God.